All right, well, uh, I'm Aaron Lafon, and uh, along with Kayvon Fatalian, uh, we are the program co-chairs, and uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our first keynote speaker, Chris Wyman. Chris is a principal research scientist um, at NVIDIA in the real-time running research team. And uh, prior to NVIDIA, Chris was associate professor at University of Iowa and uh, earned his PhD at University of Utah. Chris's career over the last 20 plus years um, has this, this continued theme of bringing um, physically based light concepts, algorithms to real time, often well before they should have been possible. For example, Chris brought refraction and caustics to rasterization 15 years ago. Um, and uh, I think that still sometimes causes uh, ray tracers fits when they see how the high quality of Chris's caustics from 15 years ago using a rasterizer, it just shouldn't have been possible. Um, I'd say that you know, Chris has a unique research style of, um, that combines theoretical advances with both intuitive explanations and groundbreaking GPU implementations. Um, one of these examples, another example is um, Chris's I3D paper from five years ago, Fresh from Trace Shadows, went on to become an NVIDIA product that went into games as a uh, NVIDIA's hybrid Fresnel Trace Shadows, which ended up being the first fully ray traced dynamic shadows uh, to ship in AAA games. Now that was one light, the sun, and that was hard shadows. That was five years ago. Fast forward to today, where Chris, along with Benedict Bitterly um, and a number of other co-authors have a SIGGRAPH paper that shows how to render millions of dynamic area lights in real time with shadows from all of them. Uh, so, you know, for the past over three years, Chris has been pursuing unified, various forms of unified physically based lighting in real time. And today's talk, he's going to share with us a collection of his insights and uh, techniques he's discovered along the way. So over to you, Chris. All right. Thanks. Let's get my, my screen shared here. All right. Hopefully you can see things now. Yep. Looks great. All right. So thank you for the introduction, Aaron. Uh, today I want to talk about uh, reframing light transport for real time. And as Aaron said, this is some work that, that has been going on in, internally at NVIDIA with uh, uh, a number of co-authors. And I, you know, I want to start off with, uh, well, if I can hit, there we go. Start off with some thanks, or, or, or really in this case, this is a pretty image. Um, and and I, I, I want to start by saying that a, a, I'm, I'm going to use a backdrop of pretty images, uh, and I do this in a lot of my talks. But this this talk's a little bit different in that all of the images that you're going to see as backdrops and slides were captured in real time, and in this particular one, well, and in all the cases, um, I'm using only two shadow rays per pixel. So this is real time dynamic lighting with moving lights. There's 3.4 million area um, emissive triangles in this scene that are dynamic, and we're running with two rays per pixel. Um, and, and so all of the backdrops sort of fall in the same category, real-time captured two-ray per pixel area lighting. So before getting into the talk, just to make sure I, I don't end up forgetting anyone at the end if I run out of time, I want to start with thanks. Um, as Aaron said, this has been work that, that Benedict has, has really been leading um, as, as an intern and, and as, you know, in, in, his, in, the, in the past year back at, at Dartmouth. And I'd like to also thank the other co-authors in the paper, Wojciech, Matt, Pete, and, and, and Aaron. Um, I also want to call out Kate Anderson, who's been a, an artist on our team, who's helped bring assets that, that really push the boundaries of what we can do in real time. And then, as, as you've seen in this image, we've also been denoising things. There's been a bunch of people who've helped with denoising and additional research after the SIGGRAPH paper. So 
I really think now is an exciting time in real-time rendering. And the reason, well, there's many reasons for this. One of which is real-time ray tracing is here. We have hardware today, more hardware is coming out. Lots of people are looking forward to real-time ray tracing and it's starting to move into a, a lot of applications. But there's a big question in my mind and a lot of people's minds, what is it good for? And there's some obvious things that it's good for. You can just accelerate the computation of sort of traditionally offline renderers. Or in real time, people have been using it to do better shadows, AO reflections, and you know some first steps into global illumination. But you know, moving to path tracing was really good for film. There's a lot of positives that can, can come out by going to ray tracing and path tracing. But unfortunately for real time, we can't necessarily rely on Moore's law to get us up to real time performance using the algorithms that people are running today in the offline space. And so I think it's really important to, to realize that there's a lot of space between just accelerating offline rendering and better shadows. And in order to get into that space, we're gonna to have to make sure to apply the constraints of real-time rendering to the general problems of ray and path tracing. And I talked a little bit about these constraints last year in an open problems talk at SIGGRAPH, um, but that was really a, a, a 30,000 foot bird's eye view of the problem. Um, and and you know, it was sort of general platitudes that everyone can agree to. But today I wanna to talk about some specifics and some specific inspirations that were drawn from the work that we're publishing at SIGGRAPH and that's been going on internally at NVIDIA. So in particular, um, let's talk about what these constraints are and then I'll, I'll dive into the details. Um, it's really important in real time, and I, you know, I'm speaking to the, the choir here at HPG, but it's really important in real time that we, we compute until we reach a, a time constraint, not a, a target quality. You know, we have to fit this into a, a frame budget and time to image is really a key metric, not quality. Um, we like quality, but uh, we need time to image first. And we need to include per frame data structure build costs in that. Um, and as, as part of this um, interactive space, we really need tunable quality knobs so that our, our code can run on both consoles um, and high-end PCs with, you know, a, a tunable quality knob. We, we need to assume that the scenes are dynamic. We want the user to be able to go around, turn lights on and off, blow up walls, and otherwise change the environment in real time. And we want our, our solutions to be robust under this control. Um, we also want this to be temporally stable. We don't want flickering blobs of, of noise that show up in front of the user as they're playing the game. They're not gonna play the game very long if, if that happens. And uh, we also sort of related to temporal stability, we need to reuse spatial and, and um, temporally either to reduce the, the cost of the frame or to increase the quality at a given cost. And something that's not necessarily a constraint, but something we have to keep in mind is ray and path tracing really brings in a lot of data and code divergence. Um, and we need to manage that somehow so that we don't uh, thrash our caches and, and otherwise treat our hardware badly. So part of the reason ray tracing and path tracing are popular and you know, interesting is they're, they're, they tend to be brute force algorithms and there's some beauty and elegance in simple brute force algorithms. But when you think about brute force, you have to be very careful moving that to real time. Um, it's simply not possible for many problems. Um, in, in the case that I've been very interested recently, you can't really expect to touch millions of lights 
for all the pixels on your frame for every frame and still get real time. And similarly, you know, an, another hard problem is you can't expect to trace all the subsurface scattering paths through, you know, human skin or a cloud even worse. Um, this suggests we need some sort of stochastic technique. Um, and of course, offline, they've been using stochastic techniques for, for ages, but we need to work to make this uh, run in a streaming fashion to fully leverage GPU resources. So what if I told you that I found a, you know, mathematical technique, you know, speaking of statistics and probability here, a mathematical technique in a domain that integrates a non-analytic and in fact unknown function. Uh, this function happens to change during sampling in unknown and unknowable ways. And what's amazing to me is the sensor properties for the ground truth measurement are actually unknown. So when we're trying to form estimates, we're forming estimates of an unknown sensor. Yet they can use sampling rates as low as one in 10 to the sixth or one in 10 to the seventh often with very poor quality, uncontrollable uh, sampling distributions. But yet they get errors within a three to 5% margin of error. That's just amazing to me. And would that interest you as a rendering person? Now, let me tell you, this certainly interested me after I saw images like this, which is a rendering of mini, uh, mini light rendering using light BVH, which incidentally is state of the art. It was published last year at HPG. It's, it's a great algorithm. Um, this is just a very difficult case for it. And if you look at this image and say, could I get that with three to 5% margin of error? That would be truly astounding. And more like the work that, that we're publishing at SIGGRAPH, the Reister algorithm. So you might ask, where can you find out more about this amazing mathematical technique? Well, and I'm just gonna point you to political polling. And now you're gonna laugh and scoff, but if you think about this in political polling, you never know the collective ground truth. It changes day to day. The actual voting, you know, who shows up depends on the weather and people's moods and, you know, get out the vote efforts. And, but yet these political polls only use a few hundred to a few thousand samples and they can take days or weeks to collect. Um, and they often don't get to choose their samples. I certainly don't answer the phone most of the time. Um, so they have to correct for whatever distribution they get. And, but yet, despite all of this, they're quite accurate, especially if you look at them, their, their actual vote percentages rather than the binary decision that they're predicting because they're pre-filtering and then predicting after they pre-filter, which is never a particularly great way to, to, to estimate things. Um, and there's some particularly interesting aspects of, of political polling that are also germane to real-time rendering. They do spatial and temporal aggregation to improve the predictive quality, which is, is, is really quite interesting. Now, of course, you might say, well, I don't really trust political polls. They're a bunch of bo you know, bogus BS. But there's a variety of other applications that use statistics very extensively. In fact, in the U.S., there's over uh, 100 federal agencies that collate statistics for things from census, employment, and economic, economic indicators, you know, the unemployment rate, resources, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And most of these are given with error much lower than three to 5%, which is even better than political polling. Though, of course, they often use more expensive and principled sampling techniques with regularly validated measurements, which also sort of improves the, you know, the, the confidence that we have that these statistical techniques are, 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 are useful for us. 
Now, in, in this context of uh, political polling and, and federal agencies, I want to particularly call out Statistics Sweden. If you guys decide to you know, get interested in this domain of statistics, you're going to find a bunch of articles from the J Journal of Offic Official Statistics, which is this, the Swedish uh, open access peer-reviewed journal. And I've got to say, a lot of the statisticians that write there um, write supremely clear articles that don't require a PhD in statistics and the target domain. And I found these extremely valuable. So if you just decide to look into this, I really recommend um, if you see a Statistics Sweden article, you read it. Now, what these statistical techniques do is they allow us to look and, you know, to, to, to really try to, to achieve the promise of, of path tracing for real time. And I think one of the promises of path tracing for real time is it makes the assets easier to, to author. And just as sort of a programmer art um, example, um, this is Suzanne's Revenge, it's a model from BlendSwap that's been you know, hopping around the, the graphics community for a while. And the version I have has no emissive lights in it. And it took me five minutes to light it like this um, with you know, the algorithms that we have now. Here's another example, uh, the old city model, which is a really tired eight or 10 year old uh, asset that I used you know, quite a long time ago. And I went in and tagged a couple materials as emissive and add, added an emissive environment map. And it really changed the look. It almost looks, you know, it almost looks modern, almost. Um, and this is an asset I pulled from BlendSwap and in a couple hours got um, quite a, an amazing result. And really the hardest part here was converting the model into the format that our, our, uh, our prototype needed to, to consume. So let's talk about real-time rendering today. What are people doing and when they have insufficient resources? How, how, how do they get good looking images? And most of you probably know the, the key thing that people do is they do some sort of spatial temporal reuse of, of work. And of course, this, is, this has been a long tradition in, in real-time graphics. You know, going back to accumulation buffering, progressive rendering, irradiance and radiance caching, light probes, Various anti-aliasing techniques do spatial and temporal reuse. Um, and coming more recently, the denoising and reconstruction filters that are, are frequently used for, for ray tracing today, and adaptive sampling, and probably many more that I'm totally forgetting. Um, but you know, spatial and temporal reuse isn't just a real-time thing. People use it in, in, in offline context. I mean, if, if you think about it, path guiding is a type of uh, spatial and temporal reuse, as is just radiosity and finite element methods uh, generally. So let's think about what sorts of things get used. And this, this might give us some insights for how, how to do things better uh, in real time. So commonly today, colors of various sorts are reused. You know, pixel colors for post-process filtering, texture colors in baked light maps, um, colors in other spaces, you know, for instance, world space for irradiance volumes. Um, one of the problems with colors though, when you start to reuse it, is by the time you get around to the reuse, which is usually at the end of the frame or the next frame, you've lost most of the non-color information. And that means if you, if you start filtering it, it's very easy to blur your visibility, to, to blur or lose entirely your specular highlights. And basically you're just adding bias because you don't know what to filter over and you're filtering things that, that don't really belong together. Another thing, that you could reuse, and I, I, I don't have a really good name for this, so I'm calling it projected radiance, 
is you sort of add a little bit more information to the color, give it some directionality, maybe a gradient, something like that. And examples of this are, you know, pre-computed gradients transport, things like spherical harmonic coefficients, um, that sort of thing. And these are more expensive to compute or pre-compute, and they reduce some of the problems of reusing colors directly, but they're not fully eliminated because you're still sort of doing this at the end when you've lost a lot of the information that you might need to reduce the bias. Um, you could reuse visibility, and, and we do this fairly commonly. Shadow maps are one form of that, form factors and radiosity, or even ambient occlusion if you think about filtering it in screen space. But of course, visibility is almost always binary and reuse is a type of filtering. And so it's very hard not to blur by over-filtering or alias by under-filtering visibility. Um, other things you could reuse are ray segments. I mean, bidirectional path tracing does this, light field rendering does this. You could also reuse probabilities, you know, in, in adaptive ray tracing or path guiding or the random variates themselves in various primary uh, sample space techniques. And these last three things have been less well explored in real time, and they tend to handle the issues from reuse a little bit better than reusing color directly. But there's this big question of how can you do this efficiently? So let's think about what is reuse doing and why is reusing computation reasonable? What reuse is doing is it's, it, it makes some assumption, like given a small change in X, you know, pixel space, the change in color or the change in Y is something. And that something is usually small, smooth, understandable, or something like that. Um, but when this assumption breaks, that's when you get your artifacts. In the case of screen space filtering, you often get things like uh, blurring, aliasing, lag, ghosting, halo, ringing, all the things that we sort of, uh, you know, we, we, we think about with post-process filtering. And this is generally bias and noise that's being added, usually bias. So I have an assertion. Uh, my assertion here, and, and I, I think this is a re reasonable one that most of you will, will agree with, my assertion is that the artifacts are less correctable the later in the rendering process you try to deal with them. So if you're post-processing your final colors, you've lost most of the data you need to correct for broken assumptions, and many people try to add that back in using bilateral filtering or something that injects more information. And you have to do that because you fundamentally lost that information already. If you do this earlier in the process, you may still have access to that information to, to help avoid these artifacts. Okay, so that means you should reuse uh, information earlier in the renderer. And my suggestion is you do this as part of important sampling. And I, I, for, for those people who, who are fans of path guiding, this is not really a surprise, but for others, let's, let's talk about why. Uh, one reason is that the important sampling function can be nearly arbitrary. You can, you know, as long as you have a function that's well chosen, it will improve the convergence of your Monte Carlo integration. And that means you get a bang for buck increase um, and your, your, your quality is better at the same uh, rate cost. Um, worst case, if you choose poorly this important sampling function, you'll add noise and that's a bang for buck decrease. But if you have good reuse assumptions, um, whenever those assumptions hold, you'll improve your quality significantly. And sure, in a few, paces, uh, a few places, your, your assumption will break. And in those cases, the pixels will become noisier. Um, but you can probably still apply post-process anti-aliasing after the fact um, in, in order to deal with those pixels. So that's my, my assertion. You should reuse earlier in the renderer. 
And so let me suggest um, this reuse assumption. Nearby pixels have a similar probability to select a given light sample. So th this is the assumption used in our direct lighting um, algorithm at, from SIGGRAPH this year. But you could probably re replace nearby pixels with nearby texels or nearby voxels. And you could probably replace light sample with path vertex to, ha to have a similar assumption for more general problems. And this really suggests that what you want to do is reuse your neighbor's important sampling function. You might ask, what does this even mean? Um, and I would suggest that what that means is if you construct a per pixel sampling PDF, you're going to aggregate them to improve quality. That, that might be one way to move forward. So if we're going to think about that, let's talk about important sampling for a moment. So I want to remind you that important sampling is vital, and, and most of you probably know this, um, but it's especially vital for real-time rendering. So if you have your, your, your integral that you're sampling using Monte Carlo integration, right, your important sampling, the, the, the density that you sample according to P, um, if you use a better one, it means this integral, this, this estimate converges faster and you need fewer samples N for convergence. And this is really truly vital for, to minimize in real time. If you can only afford to send two or three or four rays per pixel, if that, you better hope that N here can be two or three or four, which means you better have a darn good sampling PDF uh, P. So that suggests an idea. Maybe we should target perfect important sampling where P is proportional to F. After all, if you do that, that is gonna reduce your samples needed down to one. Now, of course, when important sampling is usually taught, this idea is hand waved away, it's sort of laughed at. Um, and in fact, when I taught uh, important sampling, I did this as well. But let's actually do a little bit of a thought experiment here and, and think about what would perfect important sampling mean and should we really ignore it out of hand? So if, if P is proportional to F, so we're doing perfect important sampling, that means P equals you know, some normalization constant C times F. And since for any PDF, the integral of P needs to, to be one, it's easy to show that this constant C is one over the integral of F. And this is where the hand waving usually begins. To quote from a book that, that many people trust, uh, the third edition of PBRT, um, th this is where the text goes and said, of course, this is ludicrous since we wouldn't bother using Monte Carlo if we could integrate F directly, which makes a lot of sense. But let me suggest to you that if we're doing Monte Carlo integration, why should an integral inside our nu numerical approximation bother us? I mean, if there's an integral there, we're already numerically approximating it. We probably don't need that, that integral particularly accurately. Why don't we just approximate it too with Monte Carlo integration? So that brings us to resampled important sampling or RIS. Um, and I informally think about it, sort of my mental model of RIS is approximately perfect important sampling. And you'll see why in a moment. So imagine you have an unnormalized function P hat that you wanna use for important sampling. And of course, for perfect important sampling, this will be equal to F. So first of all, you need to normalize it to get your density by dividing by the integral of P hat. And now you could say, well, I didn't know the integral of P hat, that's a problem. So you approximate it using a Monte Carlo estimate. Now we can plug P back into our Monte Carlo, our Monte Carlo estimator and you get this. And this equation here 
happens to be exactly the resampled important sampling estimator. And I highly recommend you go see Talbot et al. Um, or excuse me, an EGSR paper from 2005. So what is resampled important sampling? Um, it's, it's, it's actually interesting. Um, I, I looked through a, a number of books and textbooks and tutorials and courses, and this is not well covered in most of the graphics community. And I certainly didn't uh, learn about it in, in school. Um, I, if you want to learn about RIS, I recommend you go to Talbot's paper or his PhD dissertation, which I think both explain it quite clearly. Um, but here is the RIS estimator. And what's going on here, a, a good way to think about this is you're taking M samples from a distribution Q, right? This, this, this sum in here, this is an integral and the importance, the distribution you're sampling from is Q. That distribution is a cheap, low quality or simply bad distribution. And you take a bunch of samples M from it and you turn it into to N samples from an unnormalized distribution Q here. And this distribution, or excuse me, excuse me, a distribution P hat. This distribution P hat is complex, high quality, hard to sample, or maybe impossible to sample um, analytically. And typically how this works is N is much less than M. And these N samples that you take out here for your final estimate become higher quality, the closer, uh, meaning closer to P hat as M goes to infinity, because then of course this turns into that integral. And so if you think about this, when M is equal to one, a lot of this nonsense cancels away and you just have F over Q. And so this is equivalent to important sampling using the, the, the distribution Q. And if M equals infinity, this turns into an integral and this is equivalent to sampling directly from the normalized distribution P hat. Now you might you know, realistically ask, why am I dragging you through all this math? And the reason is there are some benefits, some really important benefits to use RIS uh, for real-time rendering. So imagine you have a more complex function here, S times V. And I've chosen these, 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 uh, uh, th these names carefully. You might imagine S is the shading and V is the visibility. And you might pick your target function P hat to only be part of the integrand. So you might pick P hat equals the shading term S. And then you can see that some of this sort of cancels away, if, if I hand wave, hand wave, cancels away and you get this, this equation here. Um, and an important thing to notice about this is this cleanly decomposes the integral into pieces that get evaluated at different frequencies. And this is very, very valuable if the cost of V is more expensive than the cost of S. Or if, if it's the other way around, if S is more, more costly than the cost of V, you could swap these. But what this does um, for real-time rendering is if, it's, if we can cheaply compute a shade or a shade approximation, we can use those to determine where we should shoot our rays. And the more of these cheap shades we, we test, the better our quality of, of, of the rays, the end rays that we shoot. Now, we can do this multiple times. And this is something that I haven't seen before in the graphics literature, or if so, it's, 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 it's uh, not well known. Um, so this is the integral for the, the, the full rendering equation using the area formulation we use for uh, direct lighting, the BRDF times a geometry term times incident light times visibility. And if you pick P hat as the BRDF times the geometry term times the light, you get this thing here that looks like this. But this thing here, this normalization factor for P hat is still a legitimately hard integral 
evaluated Mon with Monte Carlo, maybe we should just apply RIS again to get a good function P to sample this with. So you might imagine using a second target function P of the geometry term times the lighting. And if you do that and stick in another RIS estimator here, you get something that looks like this and some of these things cancel out and you get something that looks like that. And of course, it's pretty easy now to sample Q proportional to the, the intensities of the light, which allow you to get further cancellation. And if you look at what's going on here, you've now um, split the numerical integration into several pieces, V, the BRDF, the visibility of the BRDF, the geometry term, and potentially the lighting are all evaluated with different sampling rates. And that seems like something that could be extremely powerful. So for those of you who haven't learned RIS or, you know, or haven't taught it before, let me suggest why you should maybe change that. So, and this is really just a summary, a takeaway of, 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 of all that math, right? It, RIS allows you to convert M cheap samples into N ones of better quality, which allows you to sample from nearly arbitrary functions in an unbiased way. My mental model here is this is an, a, an approximate perfect importance sampling. And as M goes to infinity, you approach this perfect sampling distribution. Um, one of the really key things for real time and for designing algorithms generally is RIS allows you to apply, to, to apply it in multiple stages, which gives you lots of flexibilities. Which order do you do what? What's more costly here? What scale? What space do you do this computation in? And it decouples the computational frequency so you can use cheap to compute terms to improve the quality of your expensive operations. And I think that's a really key takeaway here. So now I've talked about this approximately perfect important sampling and to get good results that suggests you want M, the number of candidates that you use for your RIS to go to infinity. So let's imagine we pick M of 10,000 and we wanna just pick one sample. There's an interesting question here. Do you want to keep all of those 10,000 candidates resident in memory? Because if you do, that's going to limit how far you can crank up N if you have to store it all in memory and process it. Um, most people today keep the candidates resident when they do RIS. I've looked at a, at a bunch of people's uh, RIS implementations, and this tends to be the way people do it. They, they'll, they'll take a bunch of samples, compute a discrete CDF, and invert them you know, using a bisection method or maybe a straightforward linear search through the candidates to pick the one that they want. But if you're gonna keep 10, I mean, if, if, you, if you're gonna look through 10,000 samples just to pick one, do you really wanna keep those all in memory? Why not try to discard them incrementally and just keep the one or the N that you need? And this brings us to another algorithm called weighted reservoir sampling. And if you don't know weighted reservoir sampling, do yourself a favor and go learn it. If you do know res weighted reservoir sampling, do yourself a favor and keep this at the very top of your toolbox. I think this algorithm is going to be really important moving forward for stochastic techniques and real-time rendering. What is it? What is what is it? What is weighted reservoir sampling? It's a well-known algorithm from the early 80s, back in the day when data was stored on reel-to-reel -reel tapes. And it was a, a big pain in the ass if you needed to rewind your, your tape halfway through your algorithm so you could do a second pass over the data. And so people were naturally very interested in coming up with alternates, alternate ways of dealing with this. And so weighted reservoir sampling is a streaming selection of, of elements from an arbitrary weighted uh, stream. So you can have 
elements with arbitrary weights, and you can pick according to their proportional weights um, using weighted reservoir sampling in a streaming fashion. It does one pass over the data, so you, there's no need to rewind, or in our case, there's no need to keep them in memory. Um, and the size of your stream doesn't need to be known in advance. So this is great for real-time rendering. If you only have time for 64 random samples, so M equals 64, great. If you have time for more, you could turn it up to 128 or 1,000 or a million, um, and you could just keep running the algorithm without changing the code at all. And it's constant memory. So if you're going to return one sample, you only need a reservoir of size one. Now, this is an easy proof by induction. Many people have actually reinvented this wheel, including myself. Um, but you should really go read up on the 40 years of theory that follow the initial papers, because there's some really interesting aspects to this. But it's so simple that we can sort of prove it here on a slide via induction. Um, if you, if you want to understand what weighted reservoir sample is, um, you have a stream of samples. You pick the first one with weight greater than zero. A new one comes in, and you're going to pick the new purple one with proportional weight, the weight of the purple one over the total weights of the stream. And then each time a new element comes in, you do the same thing. Pick this with proportion, the weight of the orange one over the total weight of the stream and the weight of the red one over the total weight of the stream. And really this is just an argument about proportionality, meaning the proportion, the weight of the purple element to the weight of the green one, that, that ratio stays the same throughout the stream. And so once you've sampled proportionally between those two elements, you can keep that proportion very easily by just stealing uniformly from the entire stream. And when, when your stream stops, you just output the current selection as the final answer. And so this is a great, a simple algorithm that only needs two things at any given step, the sum of the prior weights and the new element, the, the weight of the new element that you have on the stream. And if you go back to thinking about RIS, this is exactly what you need for resampled important sampling. You have a sum of the prior weights and you have a new element weight down here. Um, so weighted reservoir sampling is very simple, but also very powerful. It allows you to do RIS without the memory limiting your sample count. So the memory is O of N, and for real time, you know, N is generally a small constant, like one or two rays per pixel. Unfortunately, this is still order M compute, and we want M to go to infinity. But it turns out that weighted reservoir sampling provides another benefit that allows us to address this aspect as well. So weighted reservoir sampling allows you to com combine two independent streams of samples but the key aspect of this is you don't need to reprocess the individual samples. So if you've processed stream one here and you pick this orange sample and you process stream two and pick this gray sample to process and get one sample from the combined stream, you just have to look at the orange and the gray sample that you picked and choose them with this, you know, this relative weight. And this gives you a sample with, with density according to the, you know, a, a PDF according to the entire stream which is great because this, this is great because it allows us to do the spatial and temporal reuse that, that we need for real time. So now let's get down to, to an example and say, we have this image here. This is our amusement park with three and a half million lights. And at each, at each pixel, let's say we use RIS. We sample 32 of these, these lights randomly and pick one based on those th 32 random samples based on RIS, so according to their weights. You get something that looks like that, which isn't bad, but it's not particularly great. 
So you might say, well, hey, I've got a bunch of neighbors. Each of those also have reservoirs, which means each pixel of my neighbor also has 32 random samples and they're probably unique. So if I reused from them, I might get, you know, in over five by five region, I might get 25 times 32 effective samples, so 800. And if you swap back and forth, you can see that that image improves in quality quite a bit because now M has increased from 32 to, you know, around 800. Now you could also say, well, hey, I have a frame from last, you know, last frame. Um, it also had 800 effective samples per pixel. Why don't I merge with it? And now I have 1600 effective samples per pixel. And that gives us another big boost in quality. Now, an interesting thing about spatial and temporal reuse is there's multiple ways of doing it. And so you might imagine doing temporal, re or, yeah, temporal reuse prior to your spatial reuse. So up here, you had 32 random samples. And last frame, you had 800 effective samples per pixel. Maybe you merge those guys together to get 832 effective samples. And then you do your five by five neighborhood merge. And that gives you 20, over 20,000 effective samples per pixel. And if you look, that gives you, you know, a significant improvement in quality. And of course, once you start doing temporal reuse, you're not just really reusing from last frame because last frame reused from the frame before, which used from the frame before, which reused from the frame before. And at this point, it becomes very, very difficult to enumerate the number of effective samples that you're using for any given pixel. In fact, one of the things we had to be careful of in our code is not to overflow a 32-bit integer that was counting M. So it's important to understand that every time we merge these reservoirs, it's actually a new application of resampled important sampling. And this gives us a lot of flexibility, but it's also a big challenge because the design space is huge. Um, you need to ask, what is your target function p hat at each one of these steps? You might pick a different function every step. Um, however, it does give you a lot of flexibility because this is important sampling p hat doesn't need to actually be a physically correct anything. It can just be a function that gets you closer to your target distribution and gives you less noise in your samples. So for instance, you could use an SSAO term to approximate visibility to reduce the noise in your samples. And I think this is fascinating that you might be able to use raster hacks to improve the quality and convergence of your ray tracing in an unbiased way. I think, they, I think that's an amazing notion. Um, another thing to consider for the design space is what, where are these candidate samples stored? So for our SIGGRAPH paper, we worked in screen space, but you could imagine storing samples in, in Texel space for you know, light map baking. You could think about it in world space for you know, multi-bounce effects. You could think about it in Froxel space, or there's probably a dozen other coordinate spaces you could think about doing RIS to improve the quality. Um, another question is what sampling PDF should you use for your initial samples? Um, we're using fairly naive sampling, but you might imagine doing something more sophisticated here. Uh, I think it's an important question to think about upsampling and downsampling these reservoirs to change the spatial compute frequency. Um, for instance, in games today, people often render images at half or quarter res. So can you store these reservoirs at half or quarter res and then upsample their contributions over the entire image? That would save more time. There's a question of which neighbors to reuse and which neighbors specifically not to reuse. And this is an important question, not only for avoiding bias, 
but also for avoiding noise and just generally improving the, the sampling quality. And of course, you know, we've sort of shown an existence proof for uh, direct lighting with many, many lights, but I think this, this scales to not only GI, but longer path lengths. And so I, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of opportunity to sort of push this forward. And of course, one thing that you may not have realized in, in the talk this far, because it's, it's been sort of fast, is the sampling distributions from neighboring pixels can be quite different. And this can affect the quality. It, it can introduce bias, um, but it, it can introduce uh, problems in other ways. And we have not looked at this particularly carefully. We've we found ways to eliminate the bias, but I think there's other ways that uh, differing PDFs and neighboring pixels affect sampling quality. And it's important to think through that process and figure out how to solve that. So now I wanna explore a particular design space that, that we looked at in, in, in our work, which is visibility. And of course, visibility is often one of the most important, expensive and ignored aspects of, of real-time rendering. Um, and so I picked this particularly old model because it has a lot of challenging visibility. So this is the Berkeley Soda Hall model with you know, 20 to 40 distinct rooms per floor, six different floors in total, 50,000 emissive triangles split into every single different room has unique lights. And so not all of the lights are visible in any given room. So there's a lot of visibility. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna zoom in around here and look at some results. So this is an image with no visibility at all, and it doesn't look particularly good, as you can imagine. So this is using all 50,000 plus lights, giving a, a color to every pixel. Now, this is where you, you can start asking questions. Where do you inject visibility into this, this iterative RIS process? And an, an obvious answer is at the end, right before you shade, and we, we definitely do that, but let's, let's think about another possibility as well. Maybe we inject visibility before we do spatial temporal reuse. So what I, what I mean here is we compute 32 candidates per pixel, and before we start reusing that, that, that light sample, we first shoot a shadow ray towards the selected light. And we then only reuse the samples between nearby pixels if they were visible. And once you do this, you get an image that looks like this, and it's a significant difference. And one of the things to notice here is that the lights that are contributing to you know, the scene generally here are, are largely only the ones in this room. And you know, the light over here is contributed mostly from the light in this room off the hallway. And there's in fact some dark regions here where no lights are really contributing. And so what's going on here is you've already introduced um, almost a potentially visible set for lights. And then, of course, if you add um, shadow rays at the end after reuse, you get results like this. And if you flip back and forth a few times, you can see that what these, these shadow rays after reuse are doing is they're adding sort of contact shadows, the, the things that, that show that this chair are actually touching the ground. And so this is really interesting because reusing statistics via RIS still allows you to do computation based on signal frequency. Really what's going on here with visibility is these global shadow rays are giving you uh, the benefits of a light PVS. Um, and then the shadow rays after reuse are giving you the local sort of contact shadows. Um, and that's a really interesting observation that depending on where in this reuse you inject information, you get results with different frequencies. Um, and so you can leverage that 
um, to, to do some interesting things, I think. So we've talked through the, the math of resampled important sampling. And a lot of people that I've, I've talked to internally and, and you know, at NVIDIA and, and talked about this have, have not been real convinced by the math. And so let's, let's talk about another way to abstract this problem to maybe understand what's going on. So typically when we do rendering, we need to accelerate certain sampling processes. Say we need to select a light to shoot our shadow ray to. And typically this is done with some sort of acceleration structure, some, you know, something like a tree. And for instance, the light BVH, um, what you're gonna do is you're gonna build, deterministically build a tree, something like this. And then for the blue pixel here and the red pixel here, you're gonna traverse down this tr tree in a stochastic way um, with the blue pixel more likely picking uh, children to the left and the red pixel more likely picking children to the right um, as it traverses down the tree. And so you might get samples like this, the blue one here, which isn't necessarily the most likely one, but it's a pretty likely light for this blue pixel. And in this case, that, that light probably is the most likely one for the red. Um, and this traversal is randomized to make sure you sample all the lights here for the red pixel with the appropriate distributions. Now, another way to think about this is the statistical approach, the, the, the streaming RIS uh, approach. And in this case, no structure is built in advance. You just have a list of lights and each pixel starts by selecting, randomly selecting candidates. So here, this blue guy picks these four and this red guy picks these four. And they, these may, in, these are independent samples and they may overlap. So two adjacent pixels may overlap. Um, and then when you're gonna shade just one of them, you're gonna go through the four candidates for the red pixel, evaluate the likelihood of selecting each one and pick them proportional to the likelihood. And so maybe you pick this one for the red one and this one for the blue one. Now, it's interesting to sort of do a comparison between these because the tree-based approach you're building this structure for dynamic lights or rebuilding it every frame even. And so that might be order n log n say, um, whereas the statistical approach may have no upfront costs other than make sure, making sure your lights are in the right position. Uh, the, the, the tree has random memory reads because you're doing the stochastic traversal. Well, the stochastic approach also has random memory reads for the candidate selection. Um, however, the, the tree is doing dependent memory reads as you go down parent-child, parent-child, parent-child. Whereas in the statistical approach, all of these are independent memory reads. You could possibly do them all in parallel. Um, and with a tree, these, these can be divergent because you might go separate ways down the tree. The tree may not be fully balanced. Whereas in the stochastic approach, it, this is a fixed cost with a set number of candidates. Although to be fair, the set number of candidates may be larger than, than the, the traversal in, in the tree case. So there's a bunch of interesting takeaways that, that, that I've taken from this process and I, I, I hope you've, you've, you've gathered. Um, so both of these algorithms here rely on randomization. Um, and that, that means they're actually both examples of a randomized algorithm. Um, and this is actually interesting. This is an area where my knowledge of computational theory is a little bit lacking. Um, there are different classes of polynomial time algorithms with and without randomness. Um, and it's unclear if these classes are identical. There's, there's thoughts, but it's, it's unclear. Um, and this actually su suggests that the characteristics of randomized algorithms are slightly different than the characteristics of de uh, deterministic algorithms. And as a, a rendering community, I think it's important to think about whether we can leverage 
the statistics of randomized or the, the properties of randomized algorithms to, to help us. And we should think about this explicitly because we're already using randomized algorithms widely in uh, rendering today. Um, the, you know, when, when, when people are taught randomized algorithms, the canonical example is quicksort. A second canonical example is the Monte Carlo method, which we use all the time. But of course, the light sampling acceleration structures many of us use, um, this streaming RIS, those are both randomized algorithms as well, as are I'm, I'm, you know, neural networks. And so a lot of the important algorithms we're using to do real-time rendering today are based on randomization. And I think it's important to be able to analyze that and think through that clearly so we can design the most efficient algorithms for our purposes. Um, another interesting theory is there's, or an, another interesting takeaway is there's a lot of uh, statistics theory to, to mine. Uh, RIS is a form of sampling importance resampling, which is the, the name in statistics, which is related to rejection sampling, bootstrap filters, and particle filtering. And once you start adding reuse, um, it seems like there's some relationship with sequential Monte Carlo and population Monte Carlo methods. And there's rich uh, statistics literature to go read up here. And I think there's a lot of insights that we can take for real-time rendering. There's also some interesting properties of weighted reservoir sampling that I, I think we need to look at. Um, we're using an independent sampling form. There's also dependent sampling form if you're interested in that sort of uh, sampling technique. And there's an actually an alternate form of weighted reservoir sampling that's hard to understand when you first see it. It uses randomized exponentiated weights. And it, it, it triggers this thought in my mind, you know, is, is this related to, to things we could use for participating media? Um, an, an, another takeaway, which is, has been sort of a theory of mine, but it, it's, it's sort of been proven out in, in, in this work here, is data structures builds take a lot of time and we should maybe rethink some of them, right? For data structures, we need to build it. That's costly. We need to maintain it. It's costly. We might be building and ma maintaining things we're not using in a given frame. That's wasteful. Um, we need dependent reads for traversal for almost any data structure. That's costly. The, they may be varying costs, so you have incoherence. And sometimes the traversal itself is stochastic. And so this really leads you to this question, do we want a deterministic data structure? Or maybe we should build some randomized data structure that avoids a lot of these problems. I mean, why build a deterministic thing and then stochastically throw bits out? Why not build something stochastically? It may not have all the data you, you could want, but you're gonna traverse it in a very deterministic way. And this is more of an ideal ideology than a concrete idea, but this iterative RIS that, that, that our, our SIGGRAPH paper uh, demonstrates starts to resemble this sort of structure. And I think it's interesting to, to, to ponder that a little bit further. And really, um, I, I, I was reading this, this paper by Lynn and Yuxel from I3D this year, and, and noticed this paragraph and realized that what our work is doing is really taking this to the extreme. So their goal in, in, that, in the real-time stochastic lights cut, light cuts paper is to minimize the light tree construction and light sample selection times. And they say, well, we're gonna do stuff that might reduce the quality of the tree, but we're gonna get around this by using more samples. And really what we're doing here is taking that to the extreme. We're building a tree that's so loosely, it's almost not recognizable as a tree, but the samples are really, really cheap. Um, it definitely impacts the sample quality. Each sample is you know, almost a naive thing, but we're using maybe 100,000 or more of them per pixel, 
And that really offsets that, that, that change in quality. So with that, I wanna uh, wrap up. Um, so real-time ray tracing is here today, but maybe traditional CPU algorithms are not best suited for GPU-based stream processing. I mean, would you use the same sorting algorithm that you do on the CPU and GPU? Maybe you shouldn't use the same rendering algorithm on the CPU and the GPU, and, and we need to think through that. And now is actually a really good time to rethink our approach and, and optimize performance, because we have a big chance with um, ray tracing moving into games. The constraints of game ray tracing are very different than the constraints of film, and you don't necessarily have the expectation of a full global illumination model with you know, high quality caustics and, and participating media and all this stuff. You can insert things a little bit more incrementally, which allows you to focus very clearly on, on the, the, the performance of each step. And then think about how to generalize that um, as, you, as you scale up. Um, and really, I think I had three big theses in this, in this talk. First of all, remember that, well, this is more of a, a reminder, Rem remember the real-time constraints, they're really important. Uh, rethink complex data structures and consider streaming statistics and PDFs rather than today we stream triangles and rays. And there's likely other ways to reframe this problem. Um, you know, this is, this is a way that makes sense to me. I think there's a lot of runway for it on this, but there's probably other ways to, to reframe this problem. And because people are starting to do uh, ray tracing in games and other interactive applications, they'll be beating down your doors, particularly if you're a student come up with this algorithm, they'll be beating down your doors to try this out. So I really encourage you to, to, to think about problems in this direction. So with that, uh, thank you. Um, I'm open to take questions. All right, Chris, you'll have to uh, imagine the applause. All right. Um, I've got a few questions here. Um, so uh, first one is, um, could you talk more about uh, dynamic scenes? How much temporary reuse over how many frames is typically required um, to get the kind of high quality results that you're showing? It's, it's a good question. Um, so the reuse, um, I, would, I would say you need a, a, a couple frames before uh, things start to converge. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe five, six, seven. Um, but generally, I mean, in, unless things are moving really, really fast, like, you know, a, a, a sphere and the entire sphere moves to a, a, a novel location. So you have this sphere hole in your scene. You, you know, you, you just have a, a few pixel disocclusions around the boundary, you know, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 pixel disocclusions. Um, and those fill in and then you can denoise them pretty well right at the start especially with spatial reuse, right? It's, we're not just relying on temporal. Temporal is very, very important, uh, but the spatial reuse allows you to steal some of the multitude of samples from, from neighbors that weren't disocluded. Um, yeah. If, if I can add to that from having seen this in motion, um, it, is it right to say that when things are moving quickly, what you end up with instead of a blur is, uh, is more noise in those regions? Well, yeah, well, I think I think there's a trade-off there. You you if if you don't run a denoiser on this thing, you definitely end up with more noise where disocclusions happen, and then your denoiser that you apply on top of it may end up having to to blur a little bit more in those regions in order to not have temporal flickering and popping. So uh, you're you're you know what you're saying, Aaron is is 
correct and incorrect, depending on whether you're running, running a, a denoiser on yeah. top, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, next question is about um, the applicability of this to uh, offline. Uh, the question is, uh, I know the techniques you described here are focused on uh, for real time, I'm paraphrasing, um, but could they be adapted to offline rendering? For example, um, RIS in path tracing, bidirectional path tracing, um, Metropolis Light Transport Center? So uh, yes, I, I think I think the answer is yes, definitively. Um, there, there there are some interesting questions related to how you you move this to to offline. In particular, um, I we didn't talk about this much in the talk, but I want to emphasize again something I said a moment ago: the temporal reuse is a really really vital component of this, and. This, this is a little bit more challenging in offline where sometimes frames are rendered on, on a farm where each frame may be totally independent of the frames before them. And part of what, what gives this the power is we're using last frames, which you know we had on the same GPU to inform the sampling probabilities for this frame. And if you can't do that, you may have to rely more on spatial reuse or you may have to process sequences of um, of frames within the same you know, set of CPUs, say, so that you have access to that data. But I, I think the answer is yes, this can be applied in offline, but I, I haven't thought too deeply about it. Well, it's also, it seems like in offline, um, the uh, RIS has been used in the non-streaming fashion. Yes, um, so that's correct. Applying this, this streaming fashion could, uh, so it, in some ways, yeah, that seems directly applicable. Okay, yep. um, next question, you mentioned that when a reservoir sampling is applied is causing bias, but where does the bias come from? I don't see the bias in the math. Yeah, so the, the, the bias is, is a, a bias from uh, important sampling. So important sampling is, is unbiased as long as your, uh, your density P is non-zero whenever the function F that you're integra integrating is non-zero. And so if you imagine in, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in, a, in a, a screen space sharing space, you might have one pixel with normal like this and one pixel with normal like this. And if you reuse between them, the pixel with normal like this only covers half the hemisphere of the other guy. And so that means you're, you're, you're putting zero values for the, uh, the integrand in regions where it's non-zero. And that's what causes the bias. And actually, this is what causes ringing and haloing with post-process uh, denoising filters. It's the same assumption that's baked into the, the processing of, of, of color. It's just, it's much more uh, pronounced, well, it's not pronounced, it's, it's much more explicit why that's occurring when you do it with important sampling, whereas it's not, not necessarily clear why that bias comes in when you're filtering, uh, post-filtering the image. I have a question for you, Chris. And um, by the way, I am running long into the break. We started Chris a little bit late, so I'm going to eat into that break. We're getting a number of good questions, um, and uh, but we will uh, have a short break, and we will start after the break right on time. So we'll keep them a little bit longer. Um, Chris, you know, you, you mentioned other possible uses, and I'm asking more about this. You know, denoising and temporal AA and, and these and the like are doing spatial temporal reuse of colors, and with Reister, um, you're you're describing reuse of light probabilities. What do you think some of the other um, 
you know, quantities and portions of the rending equation um, are, are ripe for investigation, kind of similar uh, style now that you've sort of broken us free of, of being limited to colors. Well, I mean, I'd like to think that everything could be done this way. I mean, that's sort of a really crazy and ambitious notion. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of challenges getting there, but I mean, may, could, could you do, uh, does this apply to, you know, allow you to do uh, rendering of particles and, you know, uh, volumes say, um, does this extend to, uh, to visibility? Um, does this extend to GI? Does this extend to, uh, uh, you know, caustics? I, 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 I don't even know what some of that means because I haven't thought through it all, but um, I, I think there's a lot of interesting directions this could go. All right, well, um, are there any questions on Zoom? Um, and uh, this is a good chance for us to test this. I believe you can simply unmute yourself if you are logged into Zoom and wanna ask Chris a live question. I'll take a minute, pause, and I'll see if anyone wants to ask Chris a live question. I'll just go ahead and ask Chris, are the, the slides are gonna be available online or no? Yeah, I'll make the slides available. Okay, I'll do one more call for live questions. All right, well, we'll end it there. Well, Chris, thanks for the great talk and thanks for uh, kicking off HPG. All right, thank you.